Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We welcome those of you who are meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are joining us online, uh, along with the rest of our church, uh, who are meeting together at our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and in Northwest Calgary. This past weekend, I visited our Northwest campus, as well as our Bridgeland campus, and I just have to say that as I visit all of our campuses, I am so encouraged, I am so blessed by how God is at work in each of our campuses. We are one church in many locations, and not just um, in our weekend services, but we also meet in hundreds of small groups all around the city through the week. And so God bless you all as you get together with other uh, believers and other people, and you reflect his light and his love to the people that we interact with in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, and whoever else we meet throughout the week. Well, we're in a series uh, on what the Bible has to say about one of the key pursuits of a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and that is the pursuit of generosity. And today we're going to address an issue that many Christians have, and that is, if I am generous... Will God meet my needs? But before we get into that question, would you please stand and join me in dedicating this time to the Lord in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for really what is your outrageous generosity toward us. We are a blessed people. And Lord, um, all you've asked of us is that we in turn would be generous with what you've given to us so that real needs would get met. Lord, uh, search our hearts today as we look at your word. Help us to get a, a handle on our fears surrounding generosity. Help us to know you better and to trust you more. Open our minds to your truth, soften our hearts, and Lord, give us the courage to respond in whatever way the Spirit challenges us. For we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to watch this. I was born in Iran, raised a Muslim, raised to fear God. Thought that God was there to punish me. God was angry, distant, violent, hard. I was angry, distant, violent, hard. I had no purpose in my life. I cared about no one. I lied, cheated, mocked. I didn't care about anyone but myself. But deep down, I wanted to be loved, to be cared for to be forgiven, to forgive myself. I escaped from Iran to go to Turkey and I became refugee there. I had many questions. I didn't know the truth. I was told by missionaries in Turkey about God's grace, about God's forgiveness. 
about God longing to be in my life, about God's unconditional love for me, about how God died for me, to wash me clean, forgive all the bad things that I have done, just to love me. It was all that I had longed for, all that I had wanted. I gave God my heart. I repented all my sins. I accepted God's grace. God forgave me. He washed my sins away. He made me pure. I felt peace in my heart. Now I'm a man that God wanted me to be. I have a purpose. I have a love in my heart for others. I want to share the grace that God gave me with others. God led me to Calgary. Now there's a purpose for everything in my life. Now he's leading me back to Turkey to work with refugees there. There I will tell them about God's love, about his grace, and how he can lead them to a life that's worth living. He leadeth me, he leadeth me by his own hand. He leadeth me, his faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. You know, the Bible says that heaven rejoices when one person comes to faith in Christ. Can we join heaven in celebrating another changed life? Now, church, what happened to Mo is what God, that's his name, by the way. His name's Mo. What happened to Mo is what God longs to happen to every person on this planet. God is on a mission to bring all people back in right relationship to himself. To see people set free from their sins and the regrets of their past. To see people have a God-given purpose for the future and a heart that is flooded with the peace of God and overflowing with a love for others. And God has chosen to accomplish his mission through us, the church, his devoted followers. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are co-workers in God's service. In other words, we are called to work together with the Lord and with one another to bring a little heaven to earth through our testimony, our attitudes, and also through our actions. And one of the key ways that God does this is by being generous with us so that the invisible Christ will be made visible to people around us, visible to people like Mo, through our lives and also through our generosity. Mo is a Christ follower, in large part because of the sacrificial generosity of those people who said yes to God's call to be missionaries in Turkey. And those back here at home who said yes to God's call to pray and to support those missionaries as they went. You see, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, God wants all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And God has chosen to use our prayers, our witness, and yes, our generosity in accomplishing this. But here's the thing. Even though we may exercise token generosity, which costs us little or nothing, 
we are not naturally inclined to be sacrificially generous. And consequently, we miss one of the greatest ways that God wants to grow our faith, to make our faith come alive, to take the boredom out of our Christianity and to use us to make an eternal difference in our world and in the lives of the people that we know. The solution to this is found in, in Romans chapter 12. And verse 1 and 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what Christ has done for us on the cross, to offer your bodies, your life, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Apostle Paul says here, if you want to live a life of surrender and sacrificial generosity, if you want to be set free from the selfishness and the greed that characterizes our culture, then you need to change your mind about who you're really trusting in. You need to decide whether you're going to trust the Word of God or whether you're going to trust the world. You need to decide whether you're going to trust Christ or our culture in terms of what this life is all about and in terms of what really matters in life. In practical terms, if, if you're going to break free from selfishness and become sacrificially generous, you're going to need to believe God in a number of areas. I want to mention just a couple of them. First of all, you're going to need to believe that God owns everything. Whereas socialism says that the state or the government owns everything, and capitalism says that the individual owns everything, biblical Christianity says that God owns everything. He is the creator of everything. And so he owns it all, including all that we have and all that we are. Every gift, every ability, every heartbeat is a gift from his gracious hand. The question is, do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? I mean, there's a nick on your car door. You know, are you, are you able, you know, do you, do you go crazy? Or are you able to say, you know, it's God's car. It's okay. It's God's car. It's not my car. It's God's car. Sorry, Lord, nick on your door, but hey, it's your car. It's all right. The psalmist says that we are fooling ourselves if we think that anyone but God owns it all. Psalm 49, 16 says, Do not be overawed. Hmm. You find yourself thinking that sometimes? Do not be overawed when others grow rich. When the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. The statistics are unwavering, folks. Of those who are born, 100% die. <laughs> Death is the great equalizer. You brought nothing into the world, you'll carry nothing out. You came naked into the world, and guess what? You're going out the same way. And neither will I. You know, our life 
would be so much richer and fuller and simpler and peaceful and satisfying if we just embrace the truth that all that we have, God owns. Now, the good news is that our God is a generous God who delights in being generous with us, and he wants us to enjoy what he's given to us. He only asks that we would be generous with and we would good, be good managers of the time that he's given to us, the abilities that he's gifted us with, and yes, the resources that he's provided for us. 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. You will be blessed, in other words, so that you can be a blessing to others. God gives to us in order to meet our needs, but often he gives us more than we need, not so that we can increase our standard of living, but so that we can increase our standard of generosity. And when we're generous with one another, not only do the needs of the world get met, but we will witness our world beginning to function the way that God intended it to be in the beginning. And so if we want to be sacrificially generous, the first truth we need to embrace is, all that I have, God owns. The second truth is this, all that I need, God provides. The Apostle Paul gives this promise in Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now that's an incredible verse. Lots of people like to quote it. But they wonder, is it true? Will God meet my needs? Well, to answer that question, it's important that we look at that promise in context. And so I'm going to invite you to turn now to Philippians chapter 4. And you can keep your Bible open there because we're going to kind of make our way through it. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse 14. I'm going to invite you to stand again and just join me in reading these final verses together. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. So as I indicated a moment ago, let's begin by examining the context that led the Apostle Paul to pen this wonderful promise. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, he was in a prison cell in Rome. In those days, prisons did not provide food, clothing, soap and towels, medicines and other personal effects 
for the inmates the way they do now. All prisons did was to keep the prisoner locked up. If families and friends did not provide the necessities for the prisoner, they either died from starvation or from exposure or illness. And so here's Paul passing time in a filthy prison cell. He's far from family and friends. He's alone, he's cold, he's hungry, his clothes are getting filthy. It's more than likely he has sores on his body that aren't healing because of infection, and he can't do anything about it. Well, word of his situation gets back to the church at Philippi, and they decide to do something about it. Through their messenger, Epaphroditus, a wonderful name, we all need to learn it, Epaphroditus, they show up at Paul's prison cell with arms full of basic provisions for life, including food, clothes, blankets, medical supplies, toothpaste, and herbalescent shampoo. <laughs> now, can you imagine the emotional impact that this act of generosity would have had on Paul? His heart is exploding with gratitude because this wasn't the first time that these kind-hearted folks from Philippi had helped him out like this. They'd helped him out at least two other times. Furthermore, Paul's heart is deeply touched because he is aware of the high cost that came to these people in being this generous. These folks were very poor. They were making just enough to feed their families. And yet, here they are, out of their own extreme poverty, providing for his needs. And so, when these supplies show up uh, at Paul's prison cell, he hardly knows how to process the sense of gratitude that he feels uh, welling up inside of him. And so, when he writes this letter back to the believers at Philippi, he reserves the most, impart most important part of a letter... And that's the ending. He reserves that part to basically say, I want to thank you because you have blown me away with your generosity. And along with that, he spells out to them or for them and for us today why generosity really matters. Let's look at it, shall we? First of all, your generosity matters because it encourages and builds the faith of others. You can be sure that Paul was praying. In fact, I believe he was pleading with God to provide for his needs in prison. And as he indicates in verse 15, there must have been times of deep discouragement when no one else responded to his need. Other churches, other individuals were aware of his dire predicament. And yet only the believers at Philippi responded. When Epaphroditus showed up with much-needed supplies, I have no doubt the first thing that Paul did was to look up to the heavens and to say, Oh God, thank you, thank you for meeting my needs. You see, this is the way that God most often chooses to meet people's needs through our generosity. I trust you realize that when you sense God 
prompting you to, to be generous. When you sense God prompting you to provide a meal for someone or to provide child care for a couple who have no family nearby and desperately need a night out, when you feel or sense God prompting you to serve alongside others in teaching and shepherding our youth or shepherding and ministering to our children during our weekend services, I trust you realize that when you hear God prompting you and you step out in obedience to that, that your obedience may very well be the answer to someone's prayer. And in doing so, you are actually encouraging and you're actually building their faith in the Lord by being obedient. Furthermore, your generosity makes you a partner in ministry with those that you're generous with. Back in the first chapter of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul refers to the believers at Philippi as his partners in ministry. You may not feel gifted to preach or to teach or to lead worship. You may not feel called to go overseas into full-time missionary service. But when you pray for and when you support those who do, in God's eyes, you are partnering with them in that ministry. When you pray for and when you give to our church, you are partnering with me. You're partnering with our staff and our ministry volunteers. You're partnering with our city missionaries and ministries that we support. You're partnering with the national and global churches and missionaries and ministries that we support in introducing hundreds, thousands of people locally and globally to Jesus and helping them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And you are joining us in accomplishing God's redemptive purposes in the world. You're partnering with us. And one day, says Paul, you will share in their heavenly reward. Thirdly, your generosity is noticed by God. No one else may see you be generous. No one else may notice an act of kindness that you did. But God sees and God knows. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Make no mistake, being generous does not get you to heaven. Only a sincere faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and a close and growing friendship with Jesus is going to get you to heaven. But being generous is something that people who are on their way to heaven do. And here in verse 17, Paul says, if you are a Christ follower, you have a heavenly account sort of like you have a file with your name on it. And every time you meet a need, every time you give to the poor, every time you stand up to injustice, every time you serve in some way, God sees it and he records it, he honors it, and he will reward you one day in his time and in his way. 
Fourthly, your generosity pleases God. Referring to the gifts that were given to him, Paul says in verse 18, he refers to them as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Have you ever woken up to the smell of freshly baked bread and cinnamon rolls and found yourself just kind of inhaling that amazing aroma deeply and salivating to have some? This is not a good illustration just before lunch, but uh, stay with me, okay? Stay with me. All right. Well, Paul uses this imagery to say to his readers, every time you open up your heart to someone, every time you open up your hands in service to others, every time you open up your wallet and you express generosity, a sweet fragrance wafts its way heavenward and God smells it and says, oh, what a wonderful aroma. I love the fragrance that comes my way when my children are generous. And then fifthly, Paul says, when you are sacrificially generous, God will meet your needs in return. And we come now again to this promise we referred to a moment ago in verse 19. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now this is an incredible promise. But now that we understand the context more fully, I'm sure that you can see that this promise is not for everyone. You see, a number of promises that God gives that we find in the scriptures have conditions attached to them. The second Chronicles 7.14 would be a good example. God says, if that is the condition, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, now comes the promise, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So think again about the context in which we find this promise. Paul is thanking the believers at Philippi for their generosity, and he essentially says, oh, and by the way, in case you're concerned about how your needs are going to get met, I just want you to know that because you have been generous and because you have given sacrificially of what little you have, God will provide all of your needs. In short, when you're generous, that's the condition. Then God will supply your needs. That's the promise. Now, Paul stresses this because, let's be honest, when we are sacrificially generous, at times there's this nagging fear that erupts inside of us that kind of says, oh my goodness, what have I done? I mean, I've just given this significant amount of money to a ministry or whatever. What if I lose my job? You know, what if the rent goes up? What if I get hit with a huge unexpected expense? What if... What if? It's called giver's remorse. Something like buyer's remorse. But giver's remorse. It's that fear that wonders whether God will provide for my needs. You know, and it isn't just limited to those who don't have very much. 
number of years ago, Sylvester Stallone, uh, wedding to, to Janice Dickinson, uh, was put on hold because of a prenuptial agreement, or at least a, a slight little disagreement over a prenuptial agreement. Apparently, he offered her a million dollars a year for each year she stuck it out with him in marriage, plus $250,000 a year for spending money. Unfortunately, she didn't know if she could make it on that. And so she was holding out for $2 million a year, plus a million dollars a year in spending money, and a million for having his soon-to-be-born child. You know, you know we, we, I just want to say this. We hear that illustration and we go, are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? You, someone offers you basically $1.25 million a year and you think you can't make it on that? Now, here's the thing. 95% of the world is thinking the same thing about you and me. They're saying, are you kidding me? If I had your income? We lose perspective, don't we? We lose perspective. But you see, it doesn't matter how much money you have or are making. Everybody has financial fears. Everyone thinks, you know, I'm not going to have enough to make it. So I better just hold on to everything I got. If anyone had reason to be fearful of not having enough, it was the believers of Philippi. I mean, they were just scratching together enough to get food on the table. And yet Paul assures them, even as he assures us today, because you have honored God by being generous, you can know he will meet all of your needs in Christ Jesus. Now, many people quote this verse. Unfortunately, many people misuse this verse. So let's be sure we're clear on what this promise does not cover. First of all, as we just discussed, you can't claim this promise if you aren't being generous yourself. You can't expect to get a harvest, for example, if you refuse to trust God and plant some seeds. God's not obligated to meet my needs if I'm not trusting Him and obeying Him and giving Him liberty to be involved in my life and in my financial affairs. For example, God may choose to meet your needs through me. If I'm disobedient to His call, and I refuse to be generous with you, even though I've clearly heard, you know, he wants me to be generous with you, then, of course, your need will go unmet. And because your need is now unmet, God's generosity plan begins to break down, and eventually what goes around comes around, and eventually my needs won't get met either. Because as you've heard me say, you know, the reason there's, we're in a needy world is because we have so many people who are greedy. God says you can short-circuit the promise and the power of God in your life and block the flow of His blessing by being stingy. 
Furthermore, this promise doesn't cover the consequences of idleness. This promise is not saying, well, since God promises to meet all of my needs, that means I can ignore his command to work and I can just lay back and take it easy and, you know, say, well, you know, I'm just trusting the Lord to provide. <laughs> Second Thessalonians 3.6, read it sometime. It speaks to the issue of idleness or laziness. And in verse 10 specifically says that people who are unwilling to work not unable to work, please hear me clearly, not unable to work because of physical or mental limitations or because of a lack of job opportunities. No, no, those who are unwilling to work, it says they, they should not eat. In other words, they, they, they should not be given handouts by the church or friends or even their family. God expects all of us to work if we're able to work even if we're well off financially and don't need to work. Uh-oh, now I'm meddling. Now I'm meddling. I mean, isn't that the goal of everybody? To get to the day when I don't have to work anymore? Oh, yes. God expects all of us to work regardless of what our financial situation is. I really admire those in our church who don't need the income. Maybe they're retired. But they continue to give countless hours of their time and their abilities to advance the cause of Christ in some way. Even when we get up in age, I don't believe God wants us spending all of our time chasing a ball on a golf course or sitting around watching grass grow. Now, of course, there comes a time when we need to disengage from full-time work. There comes a time when we need to slow down the pace of our lives. But as long as we have a sound mind and physical health and strength, I believe God wants us to continue to use the abilities that he's given to us for his glory. Some people, you see, have this mistaken idea that work was a curse that came as a result of the fall of man. It's one of those unfortunate necessities that we've all got to, you know, do. And yet you go back to the creation account and you're going to find that God created us to work. It's part of our design. He gave Adam and Eve an assignment to work before the fall. And you see, when we don't work, when we don't exercise the abilities and the creativity that God has given to us, we're not only missing out on one of the main ways that God wants to bring fulfillment in our lives, but we're also missing out on being his representative in the lives of other people in the place that we work or in the place that we volunteer. When I talk about the fact that we need to work, I'm not saying we need to work for money. I'm talking about making ourselves available to volunteer, to do whatever, to use the gifts God's given us. This is also why we do not want to leave excessive amounts of money and possessions um, uh, in our estate for our children. Dr. James and Shirley Dobson have informed their children that while they intend to leave them something, 
They intend to give the majority of their estate to advance the cause of Christ because they do not want to remove from their children the incentive to keep working and growing and expressing their creativity as, as individuals. In his book, Straight Talk to Men, Dobson says it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. And many young people's lives have been destroyed by a large inheritance. In sociological study published under the title Rich Kids, we read the case histories of people who have inherited large trust funds. And the findings are consistent. Wealth passed on to the second and third generations has had the same effect as instant wealth through lotteries has had on the majority of its winners. It's wreaked havoc in their lives. And I'm sure you've read many of the accounts in the papers down through the years. It ruined families as siblings fought each other to control this money. They, they lost their desire to work. They, they lived aimless lives. They began treating people like dirt. They shamefully wasted their resources. And a number even committed suicide. You know, it's one thing to assist our children to get started, to help them out a bit along the way. It's another to give them so much that they lose their incentive to work and express their God-given potential and creativity. And so this promise doesn't cover the consequences of idleness or those things that lead us to be idle. Thirdly, this promise does not cover all your wants. This promise says, and my God will meet all of your needs, not all of your wants, whims, desires, and cravings. You know, as we grow in more prosperous as a nation, the disparity between our needs and our wants has grown significantly. Back in 1890, a sociologist in the United States did a study asking the people of that day to indicate what they thought were the absolute basic needs of life. Americans of that day indicated that there were 16 basic needs required to survive. About 100 years later, a similar study was done. And now Americans feel they need 98 things in order to survive. And you see, what that tells us is that our wants have a way of morphing into our needs. Folks, make no mistake, God does not promise to meet all of your luxuries. In fact, you can't go out and finance yourself to the hilt in order to have a certain kind of lifestyle. You can't take money that you can't afford to lose and gamble it away or invest it in some high-risk venture promising a quick return and huge profits and then expect God, your family, your friends, or the church to bail you out if it all goes south. And it often does. See it for what it is, folks. Our problem so often isn't one of need. Our problem is one of greed. God doesn't promise to bankroll greed or the desire to avoid work through some get-rich-quick scheme. He promises to meet all legitimate needs. Now, unfortunately, many people get upset with God for not meeting their needs. And the reason they get upset is because their idea of a need is really a whole lot more 
about a want. And because they haven't really learned to be thankful and content with what they do have. So often in order to keep up with the lifestyle of their parents or or their friends or the rich and famous, many people buy into the buy now, pay later marketing scheme of our world. And now they have so much debt They've got major stress in their life and they couldn't be generous even if they wanted to be. What's needed, friends, is being honest with ourselves about the way that we're living our lives and the way that we're spending our money and why we're doing that. We need to get back to the biblical definition of what a true need is. Now, to help us with that, you know, I just, I guess just to help us get perspective, all right? I want you to imagine us reducing the entire population of the world, 7 billion people, reducing that population down to 100 people. Now, if of the 100 people that represent the entire world, 80 of them live in substandard housing, which means they either don't have running water and electricity or they don't have a roof over their head at all. 70 of them can't read. 50 of them live on less than $2 a day. 50 of them are malnourished, meaning most of them get some food, but not enough to adequately nourish them for the day. One of those 100 is dying as I speak, and that one is a little child under the age of 10. There's a child that's dying every second, folks. And that child is dying because of a lack of food, or a lack of water, or a lack of medicine. Now here's the shocking part. Of those hundred people, six, six have over half of the world's wealth. And those six people live in North America. That's us, folks. You know, we may think we're not rich. We may read our scripture and whenever it says, those of you who are rich will say, we think of the billionaires. That's what we think. But when in scriptures talk about the rich, they're talking about us. It's talking about us. We may think we're not rich, but in comparison to the rest of the world, folks, we're incredibly rich. Our problem is we've lost sight of what a real need is. You know, a few years ago, the lead article in Time magazine asked the question, does God want you to be rich? And the article referred to a growing group of preachers and churches that teach that God wants everyone to be rich. We've already addressed the issue of the prosperity gospel in past sermons, and I'll probably address it again in future sermons, but let me just say this for now. I don't see any clear basis for the view that God wants everyone to be rich. Neither do I see a basis for the view that God wants everyone to be in poverty. What I do see very clearly is what the Apostle Paul says here in Philippians 4, that God wants to meet our needs, the basics of life, food, shelter, clothing, our need to be loved and accepted, our need to live meaningful, purposeful, and satisfying lives. Paul says, I'm content 
with that. But not even these basic needs are being met because we've closed the blinds to what a real need is. I mean, if you're in that group of 100 people and you represent the dad of, say, a 10-year-old boy that's dying, do you think it's reasonable for that dad to look across the aisle and see the six of us who represent the wealth of North America? And as he watches us pay $150 to buy yet another set of shoes or $300 to buy an upgrade yet another electronic gadget, do you think it's reasonable for that dad to ask us do you think that there's a possibility that you could help my family eat? Now, I can't imagine a one of us in this place saying no to that father. But too often we conclude, well, the needs of the world are endless. We conclude, you know, there is no way that I can meet all of those needs, which is true. But often, because we can't meet all of the needs, we close our eyes and we excuse ourselves from meeting even some of the needs. Or we don't because we can't, at least not consistently, because we're up to our eyeballs in debt. A debt that too often has come about as a result of our wants rather than our genuine needs. According to Crown Financial Ministries, 37% of adults in North America give, to, give nothing to charity at all. On average, a person living in North America gives less than 2% to any charitable cause. On the other hand, those who go to church, they do a little better, but on average, they only give 2.6% to any charitable cause. And yet those who study these kind of things tell us if everyone in North America alone were to give just 10% of their personal and business income, church budgets would more than triple, which would provide the resources to do all that they're doing and more, and still have more than enough to wipe out world poverty. You see, we're not even talking about selling everything or giving everything away to the poor. We're talking about just honoring God's starting point for generosity, the tithe, 10%. I am so grateful for the many generous people in our church who give faithfully week after week of their time, of the abilities God's given to them and their money because we're making a difference as a church in this city and around the world to the glory of God. God bless you. You're making it possible for people like Mo to find Christ. Now, perhaps some of you can't imagine how you would be able to give at all or increase the percentage of what you are giving, but it begins by making a decision that you are going to trust the Lord and invite Him to be involved in your life and in your finances by being generous. And after this service, intentionally, Sitting down with your spouse, your family, your close friends, and having a long, hard, honest look at how much of your time is invested in the cause of Christ. How much 
of your time outside of work is spent watching television, surfing the net, recreation, sports, leisure activities, and all of that stuff, and how much of it's invested in the cause of Christ. And how much of your money is really directed at servicing your needs and how much of it is directed towards servicing your wants. You see, here's the thing. If we truly believe Jesus, that all that we have, God owns, and all that we need, God supplies. If we truly believe that, you know, we have only one life and only what's done for the Lord in his kingdom is going to matter in the end, then if we want to be people of integrity, we need to begin to align our actions with what we say we believe. We need to get on a pathway of eliminating our debt. And we need to begin investing that which God has entrusted to us, the time, the ability, and the money that he's entrusted to us in what's really going to matter in the end. Otherwise, we may as well just close shop and stop saying we believe in Jesus and in his mission. But here's the good part, man. If once you step out and you begin to bless other people, you're going to be so amazed at God's provision. You're going to be so blessed. Your faith is going to come alive. No longer will you talk about your faith being boring. When you see God begin to show up because you've been faithful, it is going to skyrocket your faith. It's going to change your life. I so wish that for you. I think it was Andy Stanley that said, you know, uh, generosity isn't something that we want from you. Generosity is something we want for you. And that is so true. This is about your walk with God. I'll close with this. John Orpard says, I'm sure most of you at some point in your life have seen children playing and laughing while building sandcastles on the beach. You may have noticed how meticulous and careful they were developing their creation. But as the day wore on, the waves began to build and they came closer to those precious creations. But did you notice also that the kids didn't panic? In fact, they did the strangest thing. They jumped to their feet and screamed with delight, even as the torrent of water began breaking apart and washing away their precious sandcastles. You see, even children know the inevitable end of sandcastles. They are neither panicked or angry or bitter about what has happened. You and I should be so wise. The stuff of this world is about as lasting and durable as children's sandcastles on the beach. And yet we grown-ups get so caught up in our stuff. We get so defensive of it. And we get depressed over the loss of it. You know, church, God didn't create us 
to be famous, to get rich, to have a powerful position or to live in opulent houses. He created us to have an intimate daily friendship with us. He put us in this world to love people and to introduce people to Jesus and to share with them all that he's given to us. Our destiny is not bound up in physical things, but spiritual. So living to be 100 is far less important than living well, even if it is for a short time. Beautifying your body, though good, is far less urgent than purifying your soul. Everything about this life is fleeting and perishable. The incoming wave of our human mortality or the Lord's return is going to sweep it all away. Like sandcastles, nothing done for the sake of this world can last. Only what we do for Christ and for eternity will survive and last forever. We have learned a profound truth when we realize that we are as vulnerable as sandcastles and begin living our lives accordingly. You know, folks, life is a precious gift from God. I encourage you to wring it, it dry. I encourage you to wring dry every day all that it offers you. Revel and enjoy every good thing that God has given to you. But be careful. Oh, be careful. Not to become too attached to the sandcastles of this life. Rather, knowing God's mission and our part in it, purposefully invest your life and all that God has given to you in that which is going to last forever. One day in heaven. You'll be so glad you did. In the meantime, know this. That as you faithfully exercise generosity and obedience to our Lord, He will meet all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I'm going to call on Mo just to come at this time. He um, last night came up and asked whether he could just say a word of thanks and to pray with us. And so would you welcome Mo to the stage? Glory be to the living God of Israel. Amen. Amen. I, could, I wish I could describe for you how thankful I am for those missionaries, for those faithful and generous missionaries in Turkey, for Micah, for Peter, for Kimberly, for Brent, for Derek, those who used, those who gave their time, money, ability, absolutely everything to reach one lost sheep. I was thinking about it. My, my teacher, my English teacher, she could make maybe 10 times more money living in North America teaching other students rather than teaching in a poor area or in with the refugee kids who were some dangerous, but yet she chose to, to do that, to be generous. And also when I came to Canada in 2010, I straight came to Calgary 
and I started to go to Bible study. And that was the first um, year or first English church that I attended. And when I started to go to that Bible study, I had so many questions. I was very um, hopeless, very weak, very confused, and I needed some questions to be answered. And the Bible, the, the young adults in the Bible study, they, they, yet they did the same thing. They poured out their life for me, generously gave their everything they had. Can we pray, please? Our Heavenly Father, as it is written in your scriptures, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for the sake of you, he became poor, so that through his poverty, you may become rich. Heavenly Father, we please forgive us if, if we sometimes get selfish and thought this is saying to ourselves, this is, this is my house, this is my car, this is my bike, this is my food, this is mine and mine and mine and mine. Father, will you teach us how to be generous? Will you teach us to use everything for your kingdom? Use us to bring glory for, to your name, Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, we pray by faith that you are hearing us, Father, and you are answering us. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for Mo, and we just ask now in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would continue. We just thank you for his journey and how, how through the faithfulness of others, Lord, he's come to a knowledge of you, and he's living all out for you. Protect him, guide him, lead him as he continues to follow you with all of his heart. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you. Would you please stand? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.